0: Good morning everyone. Glad you can all come in and thaw out a bit. Uh, still pretty chilly. Uh, Well, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer as we get our study going this morning. Gracious Father, we give thanks for the new day that you've given in your kindness. and We give thanks in particular for the blessing of the Lord's Day. Lord, we are eager to come before you to enter your courts with thanksgiving and praise and to honor you, acknowledging that this is this day that you have made, Lord, we should rejoice and be glad in it. Would you draw near to us, O Father in heaven, as we consider your truth this morning, particularly the truth of your sovereignty and of your fatherly care of your people? Would you instruct us, O Father, that we could sing more intelligibly uh, with our hearts engaged in spiritual truths? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a quick reminder as we begin uh, this study this morning on the hymns of the faith. This is the last Sunday that we're doing this and we're about to move into a, a several classes uh, for Sunday school. Up here will be a study on the book of Judges that um, Joe Fowler will teach as we open up. And then downstairs, there'll be a study on uh, a book called Untangling Emotions. And again, you you get to pick where you'd like to be. Uh, that, that class downstairs will be in the larger room. There will also be an inquirer's class that will be starting uh, next Lord's Day, which will be in the youth room. So lots of things will be going on. Well, as we come uh, to conclusion with this study on the hymns of the faith, uh, this never-ending study, because we'll come back to it again, we are looking this morning at a wonderful hymn called "Whatever My God Ordains Is Right. And you can turn in your hymnal if you want to follow along there uh, to 108, selection 108, and that'll be uh, giving you some details with regard to the hymn that I'll make some comments about. This hymn addresses the theme or topic of the sovereignty of God, uh, which is, as Calvinists, a truth in which we glory that God is sovereign. Uh, But sometimes the sovereignty of God is difficult for us to accept because, as I'm sure all of you have noticed, sometimes things happen that you don't want. And you have to learn how to bow your will to the will of your Heavenly Father. And we can have real struggles in doing that uh, where we begin to utter complaints or we grow discontent or we have a a bitter heart. This song, I think, this hymn, is a wonderful practical theology on taking the truth of the sovereignty of God and pressing it into your life when life gets rough. So as this hymn lays out the sovereignty of God, it considers a couple of great truths, uh, the transcendence and imminence of God. Um, what do we mean by those two terms? Well, transcendence particularly targets the notion that God is the king over all who governs all. Uh, the idea that He's high and lifted up. He's the exalted One. He is not in any way tangled up with the affairs of the world. He sits over them. God isn't lowered by somehow being part of the creation. Uh, a view called pantheism. The Star Wars, Star Wars worldview. The Lord is over creation. Uh, what's called the creator-creature distinction. So it's em- emphasizing that. And then the other Twin truth, we might say, is the imminence of God that the Father is involved in the day-to-day affairs of life. He's near to us. And here, we're thinking in this hymn particularly about the Father who is our Good Shepherd, who is with us, and whose goodness can be trusted. But here's the kicker. No matter what He does. Whose goodness can be trusted no matter what He does. Now, I think we all would acknowledge that these things are true. He is the King. We believe He's the Father. We believe He's with us. We generally would say His goodness can be trusted. But then there's that thing He does where we lose all sight of His goodness and that He can be trusted. So this is the key element which this hymn is going to emphasize. The Lord in the exercise of His sovereignty can be trusted no matter what He does. Whatever my God ordains is right. This hymn is also thinking about the kind of day-to-day outworking of God's sovereignty, uh, the providence of God. Now, what do we mean when we say the providence of God? Do you have like a a definition that you could whip out in a second about what is the providence of God? Uh, Jerry Bridges, I think, helpfully gives a definition of providence. Um, He says, The providence of God is His constant care for and His absolute rule over all creation for His own glory and the good of His people. Um, We could go into a lot more detail. I think the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in its um, shorter catechism has another really pithy statement about the providence of God. It asks the question, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. So it's another way to say, God is ruling everything all the time. Uh, Bridges' definition focuses on He's doing it for His own glory and for our good, but the in important truth is there's nothing over which our God doesn't rule. And His rule, while exercises one over us, His rule is carried out as He comes close to us. He's near to His people. And those are really helpful truths. Now, when we think about the providence of God, another hymn comes to mind. Maybe one of the most famous hymns uh, in Christian hymnody by William Cooper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And when he talks about the doctrine of providence, also discussing what do you do when God does things that you didn't want Him to do, uh, he says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Again, that enduring perspective that yes, God is ruling, and sometimes things don't go like we would want, and we would call that a frowning providence, but He's still trustworthy. He's still good. He still cares for His people. How does all this relate to our particular hymn, 108, uh, Whatever my God ordains is right. Well, let's look at some background information concerning the hymn. Uh, let's meet the author. Uh, he's a man named Samuel Radikas, a, a German, um, as you see, uh, mid-1600s to early 1700s. So this hymn, uh, from our perspective, is pretty old, late 17th century. have been singing it for a long time uh, in Christian circles. Uh, this particular man... Uh, was the son of a Lutheran minister, and he was a lifelong educator. So he's not a theologian, we might say. Um, he is not a preacher. A lot of the hymns are written by uh, preachers or professional theologians. That's not what he was. He was simply an educator. He wrote this hymn uh, in the early 1670s, most likely to comfort a friend of his, Sir Chris Gastorius, uh, who was very ill and you know, in the ancient world, when you were sick, it was a lot more serious than we often take sickness because you had no idea if this was going to be a sickness unto death. So, evidently, this was a, a serious sickness, and he wrote this hymn with a view to comfort his friend. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. We often think of these <clears throat> great hymns of the faith written in view of the whole church and them singing. This was a personal reflection encouraging a brother in the truth of God's Word. You remember uh, in Hebrews in particular, we're told a couple of different times to encourage or to exhort one another. Hebrews 3, we're to exhort one another as long as it's still called today so that none of us are overtaken by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, this hymn really serves that purpose. These are the truths, dear brother who's sick, that you need to think on so that Sin and its deceitfulness doesn't overtake you into having hard thoughts of God. Uh, Gastorius, the friend for whom the hymn was written, was a song leader, uh, what's often called a presenter uh, in uh, Lutheran circles, even in Reformed Presbyterian circles. What does the presenter do? Uh, He stands up front and helps to lead the congregation in singing. If you're a Reformed Presbyterian, they don't have any instruments and it, so everything is in an a cappella and the presenter you know sets the tune uh before the people he he pitches it so we can sing that's something of what I'll do at the end here that would be what a presenter does um so he's the presenter uh and he's a teacher alongside Rodcast at the University of Jena in Germany now gastorius wrote an initial tune to this hymn so evidently his sickness wasn't so bad he was really about to die. He was able to write a tune uh, to this particular hymn, and the Trinity hymnal ascribes the tune to him. You can see that if you're looking uh, at Selection 108 in your hymnal, down in the corner on the left-hand side, I believe it will mention his name. However, many hymnologists believe that Johann Pachabel actually wrote this tune. And there's A debate about it. Now, everybody knows Pachelbel because of Pachelbel's canon that everybody seems to think that that's the song you need to play at various events. seems to be associated with weddings or Christmas. Uh, Overused tune, I must say. Um, But I think he wrote this. And that's interesting uh, to us because we have a connection to who he is and and what he wrote. So, German... uh, German author, German tune, German words. You've got to work on your German up there. Was Gott tut, das ist Volgaten. Wouldn't that be fun to try to sing together? You spit on each other as you are in the middle of singing. Well, the hymn first appears in a German hymn book in 1676, and it was popular. It was vastly popular. In fact, the popularity is reflected in, in, uh, in Bach who uses this hymn or portions of the hymn stanzas in seven seven different katatas? Now, Bach is a prolific author uh, from organ works to other works to writing katatas for the people to sing or the choir to sing in the Lutheran Church every Lord's Day. Um, I can't even wrap my mind around how he would do this. Uh, But Bach is constantly coming back to the words of this particular hymn, which is pretty striking that he would use it so often. Um, The translator, uh, Catherine Winkworth, uh, mid-19th century. Uh, Catherine was an English educator, and she had some skill in German, obviously, in order for her to be able to translate. She spent a year in Dresden, Germany, and while she was there, she took an interest in German hymnody. Uh, So she begins uh, perusing libraries, looking for copies of hymnals, reading the German, seeing what touched her own soul. And then she ends up publishing three books of German hymns, all of which she translated in 1854, 1863, and 1872. Uh, It's been said, I think it's the Harvard, Harvard book on hymnology, it's been said that Winkworth did more than any other single individual to make the rich heritage of German hymnody available to the English-speaking world. So she's taking, in essence, the best of Lutheran hymns, translating them so they can touch a wider audience uh, in the English-speaking world. Now, the Trinity Hymnal uses 19 of her translations. That's quite a bit. Most of these actually we here at grace, don't sing. We don't know a lot of, of these particular ones. Um, but some of the most beloved we do sing, "Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation, which is a reflection on Psalm 103, and a, a glorious tune, uh, a wonderful hymn to sing. Now think we all are God, uh, which is another hymn, uh, this is a psalm reflection. I think Psalm 98 is the, is the psalm reflection. And then this one, "Whate'er my God, ordains. Is right. So that's a little bit of background about the author, about the translator. Let's think about the hymn itself uh, and the text of the hymn. And we'll kind of do as we always do. We'll walk through the verses. But we begin with a theological perspective. Where in the Bible does this notion, whatever my God ordains is right, come from? Where do we see this asserted in Scripture? Well, two places are, are striking here. And, and I'm using uh, the the King James Version, because that would have been what at least the English translator, Winkworth, is working with as she translates. Um, Judges 18, sorry, Genesis 18, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You remember this is when God has come to Abraham and two angels and visited with him and Abraham exercised hospitality. It's revealed that Sarah will indeed give birth to a son at this time next year. And then there's a discussion in the mind of God that we we hear uh, written down for us. It's not though God deliberates. uh, But it's made known to us in that type of way. Shall I reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do? And then there's the revelation that the Lord is going to bring destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. And upon that revelation, Abraham, who knows what is in Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot had moved close to Sodom and then moved closer to Sodom and then was now in Sodom, which is not good for his own spiritual condition or the welfare of his family. Um, so he begins. Abraham begins asking these questions. You know, will the Lord destroy the righteous along with the wicked? He asks. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course the assumption here is, yes, the judge of all the earth will do right of course the Lord will not destroy the righteous together with the wicked. And he begins asking the Lord, how how many righteous does there have to be for this city to be preserved? Which is an interesting section of Scripture. So, the question assumes that God the Judge always does what is right. And then there's a declaration in Deuteronomy 32. uh, It's a song of Moses that begins with an ascription to God as the rock, His work is perfect, For all His ways are are judgment. I think ESV says, For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is He. So again, the question, shall the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes. But here there's just the assertion that God in all that He does is just and right. Or to put it in a way we might say today, God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't have to go back to the drawing board and figure out something because His plans have been thwarted. Everything the Lord is doing, He's doing according to His will, and whatever His will is, is right. And if we don't believe that, if we begin to question the rightness of God's actions, how things have unfolded, we really are subverting the rule of God as though He's not good. That would be the challenge. And this is why, just as an aside, the sin of complaining is so significant. Now we, all of us, me included, we complain about something every day. But when we read the account of Israel in the wilderness constantly complaining, and the Lord does things like sends snakes to bite them and many die, or sends a plague and thousands of people die, surely we should wake up to the significance of complaint it's the challenge of God. It's a, a complaint is to say, "Lord, you don't know what you're doing, and I would do a better job if I were on the throne," which is blasphemous, and it strikes at the character of God as though He isn't good and doesn't know what He's doing. So we have to be careful as we think about this truth that what God is, well, what He does, is just and right. And we remember that He's the transcendent Creator and we submit to Him. Now, again, these things are wonderful to acknowledge when everything's going well or when kind of we're in the abstract, right? We can talk about the sovereignty of God and kind of disconnect it from the trouble of life. But where this hymn is special is it brings us into life's trials. How do we face the trials of life? Well, we have to face them believing that our God reigns. That the Lord is in control in the midst of our trials. That He hasn't been unseated from His throne. And then there are other verses to consider. Ephesians 1.11 God is the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Or Romans 8.28 which we all know and love. Uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His will. Purpose. So God has a sovereign will that He's exercising. And whatever He does, again, is for His glory and the good of His people. Uh, the Westminster of Catechism reflects upon this truth of the sovereign will of God in a question asking, what are the decrees of God? And the answer being, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, Derek Thomas, um, who's a professor of mine and a friend, uh, put it like this. And I think this is a helpful way to state it pastorally. What happens, happens because of God's sovereign will. Let me just stop at that. What happens, happens because of God's sovereign will. What would it mean if what happened happened contrary to god's sovereign will. It would mean he's not sovereign. Yeah. Any other consequences you can think of? Okay, it would mean it would it would lead to the question, well who's on the throne? You remember these questions come up every time there's a major tragedy in the world, whether it be a tsunami, terrorist attack, earthquake, flood, something. Where was god when that happened? It's a bad question to begin with. But that question is always asked. Where, where was God? Uh, in C.S. Lewis' famous language, God is put in the dock. And, and the dock is like God is having to take the stand and you know, the little bench and seat where He's going to be questioned as though He didn't know what He's doing. God is put in the dock every time some calamity strikes. Um, we've got to get away from that mentality. Okay, whatever happens, happens because of God's sovereign will. It's not your will. There are things that are happening that we don't like. But whatever happens, happens because of the sovereign will of God. In the Bible, I don't have time to take you into all the details of how firm the Bible is in asserting this truth over and over and over. But then, we need to recognize He wills it before it happens, and He wills it to happen in the way that it happens. We're not moving forward historically in a haphazard fashion wondering, you know, is God really in control? Is that thing that's about to happen somehow going to knock me out of the will of God? No. Uh, If God weren't orchestrating everything all the time, unfolding His purpose, none of us could be certain that any of His promises are true. Uh, R.C. Sproul was famous for saying that there's not one maverick molecule in this world. Because if there were one maverick molecule, that could be the thing that causes God's purposes to fail so that things don't work out for our good. How could God even say that all things are going to work together for our good if there's one thing that He's not in control of? Well, He couldn't. It would be like us as parents making promises to our children which are always contingent upon other factors. Hey, we're going to go get ice cream later, but then we have a car wreck so we can't go get ice cream. Um, You're not in control. So all of your promises have to be uh, given a condition. And you remember James brings this condition up. What is the condition? If the Lord wills. Now in, in the American South we sometimes say, if the Lord wills and... The creek don't rise. That's a really bad theology. Uh, if the Lord wills, uh, we need to think that way. And this hymn is about submitting to what the Lord wills. So let's get into the weeds of examining it. Now I want you to notice a unique feature to this hymn is uh, the theme of preaching to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in a book called Spiritual Depression, which is a, a wonderful book where he's examining handful of psalms and thinking about the believer's struggle as he walks through seasons of darkness. And he he points out in Psalm 42 and 43 that the psalmist is preaching to himself, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. He, He preaches to himself. So it's biblical, I know I've said this before, it's biblical to talk to yourself. In fact, you can't live as a Christian without addressing your soul. You have to talk to yourself. You have to tell yourself the truth. Right. This hymn does that with a refrain that keeps occurring in every verse. The assertion begins, whate'er my God ordains is right. And he just keeps saying that at the beginning of every verse. It's a proclamation to self. What, and notice it's personal. Whate'er my God ordains is right. And then he makes a further statement of truth in response, his holy will Abideth. The hymn has almost an antiphonal quality. <clears throat> Y'all know what an antiphonal singing is. It's kind of the call and response. So you would have this happens in the Psalms. The Levites would sing something, and then other Levites would sing something else the next line. And you, you find this occurring in, in music. Uh, you find it occurring today in certain sections of the church <clears throat> where there's a kind of a call and response going on, antiphonal singing. That's the sense here. Whatever my God ordains is right, then there's the response to it His holy will abideth. The verse continues I will be still, whate'er He doth, and follow where He guideth. He is my God. Though dark my road, He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to Him I leave it all. Let's think about a few. Scriptural concepts that are conveyed in this uh, particular verse. One, uh, submission. Eli, uh, the aged judge and priest, um, he's taken little Samuel uh, into his <clears throat> home and he's raising him. And Samuel has to be taught how to listen to the Word of God. You remember there's a story, 1 Samuel 3, about... Samuel hears a voice and he comes. He wakes Eli up. It's in the night. Did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Goes back to bed, comes and does it again. Did did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Oh, I think the Lord is addressing you. Say, next time when it happens, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. What's the first message young Samuel gets? It's that Eli's house is going to fall. Can you you just imagine that? You're you're young and... The presumption here, he he may be under 10 years old, and the Word of the Lord comes to him, and the first word he has to say is to tell his father in the faith, because of your disobedience, your house is going to fall. And no one else from your house is going to be ruling as priest. That's a devastating word. And how does Eli respond to it? Submission. It is the Lord. Let Him do what seems good to Him. Is that how we take bad news? It is the Lord, all caps, it's Yahweh. It's my covenant God who is always faithful, whose steadfast love never ceases. Let Him do literally the good in His eyes. I think that translation's way better. Let Him do the good in His eyes. It might not be good as I evaluate it, but His goodness is better than my judgment of what's good. So I submit to Him. <clears throat> Standing still at God's Word and providence. Job, of course, is the famous example. You remember Job's difficulty. He starts really well in handling all the difficulty. Um, the Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He responds in chapter 2 to his wife who says, curse God and die, which by the way, this is exactly what the devil said Job would do. So Satan is using Job's wife to attack him, which is a biblical theme, by the way, that the Lord will use those in our own household to bring satanic thoughts at us. Job responds well again. Shall I accept good from the Lord and not, the ESV translates, I think, calamity? Uh, the word in Hebrew is evil. Shall I accept good but not the bad stuff? No, I have to accept all of it. God is sovereign over all. But then, things kind of move forward in a way that Job shows that he's a flawed man. He, he wants an audience with God. He begins questioning God. He gets impetuous about questioning God. And then chapter 38, comes the rumble in the jungle. The Lord reveals Himself to Job in the whirlwind and He starts asking questions like, where were you when the morning stars sang for glory? Where were you when I cut the shaft for the lightning to come down and ruled over the rain that fell? And it's like just knockout blows over and over. Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? you? There's no answer to these questions. And Job eventually is going to say, I lay my hand over my mouth. I I spoke without knowledge. We do this kind of thing all the time. Something happens in the the unfolding of the providence of God and we don't like it. And we start raising questions as though we should have an audience with God. But we really should be doing this. I lay my hand over my mouth. I'm, I'm just a creature. And I have to submit myself to the Lord. There's a trust of the shepherd here. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. We know Psalm 23 well. The Lord is my shepherd. Notice the language here. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. And then it gets personal. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He does this. He does this. He does this. But now it's you're with me in the dark road. <clears throat> submission. Right. So yeah, putting putting your hand over your mouth is again a you cease to challenge God in what He's doing. It doesn't mean necessarily that you don't even ask the question why. Um, Psalm 13 is a really good example you know, of, of David asking why. But there's always a submission <clears throat> even in asking the question. Uh, so resting in the goodness of the Lord. I don't have time to read all of this. Psalm 73 is a famous example of this where the psalmist Asaph is wondering, you know, why are the wicked prospering and I'm suffering every day? Why is this happening, Lord? Uh, But he comes into the house of God and he gains perspective in the midst of worship. Another reason, by the way, why you should come to worship even when you don't feel like it. You should come to worship even when you're not thinking right. Because here you get correction. Here you're recalibrated to the truth. And Asaph knows he was acting brutish, ignorant, and I was like a beast before you. But the Lord, nevertheless, is with him comforting him in the face of his trouble. Verse 2, <clears throat> preach to yourself. Whatever my God ordains is right, and then the assertion back, he will, He'll never deceive me. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know He will not leave me. I take content what He has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait His day. Many verses we could think on. But fundamental here is a trust that he won't deceive me. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He can be trusted. The Lord is not deceptive in any way. And we need to acknowledge that. The, the, the devil wants to challenge God as though God's a liar. <clears throat> this is a, something you have to preach to yourself God doesn't lie to me, God never deceives me. There's a reflection on his faithfulness here. Um, the Lord, uh, Moses told Joshua, uh, He goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Samuel will tell all Israel later in 1 Samuel 12, the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. We all know the truth. The Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And we have to tell that to ourselves when difficult things come into our lives. There's a resting in the Lord here in this verse. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let's emphasize that word. <clears throat> learned. I have learned. Um, we, none of us, and the Apostle Paul's admitting this, none of us take content the moment he sends something that we don't want. Like. We have to learn contentment. We have to learn to submit. We have to tell ourselves the truth so that our souls will be given a frame of contentedness in the Lord and what He's doing. Uh, we have to trust, you know, His hand can turn my griefs away. Uh, Psalm 147.3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Or Psalm 25, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. I put my trust in You and I wait upon You. Things are not clear to me right now, Lord, but I know You're good, I know You love me, and I wait upon You. That's the posture of the soul. Verse 3, Whatever my God ordains is right, again he asserts, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. There's an acknowledgement here of God given affliction. Um, God is in control, He's ordained something, and I'm drinking the cup that He ordained, right? So you remember uh, Psalm 80 You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. When suffering comes to us, God sent it. <clears throat> there's the acknowledgement from Naomi. It's not Naomi at her best, we might say. Do not call me Naomi. Uh, call me Mara, bitter. That's what that word means. Uh, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, there's some ways that that isn't good, but at least she's acknowledging that God's the one who sent it. Right? She's, God's in control. She's accepting that. And that's a lesson of faith to learn. Submission, again, Job's question. Shall we receive good from the Lord and not receive evil or adversity? Lamentations 3, of course, is the most common thing here to think of. Each mourn anew sweet comfort, yet shall fill my heart. Right? And it comes from everybody's favorite verse in Lamentations that His new morning mercies, they meet us. His steadfast love is there, steady every morning. But you've got to remember Jeremiah's situation. Jeremiah is watching the destruction of Jerusalem. He's seeing his city destroyed, the temple burned, people killed in the streets, children dying, fainting of hunger and dying, women eating their children to survive a famine. He's talking about his own suffering and how horrible it is, and he describes it, uh, how God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. God has done this. God has done this. God has done this. This is awful. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall, He says. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then there's the confession back to this, and pain and sorrow shall depart there's the acknowledgement biblically that God cares about our pain and sorrow. Psalm 56.8, You have kept count of my tossings, David says. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God notices when you weep, brethren. And He cares about you. How did Jesus respond to the weeping of Lazarus' sisters at the tomb? What, What did He do? <clears throat> he wept. The Lord is afflicted as we are afflicted. Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 63 says. He's in our sorrows with us. Isaiah 25, 8, hope. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Revelation 21, 4, will quote that. Or, or Samuel Rutherford puts it. I, I love the imagery. The Lord will take His, his napkin, His handkerchief, and he will wipe away every tear from the eye. And the sense is he will move from believer to believer to believer to believer, wiping away all tears. Because he's personal. What a beautiful image. And in Isaiah 35, when the Lord comes with his saving glory and we come to Zion with singing, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, all of our tears. All of the struggles of this life are over. That's the hope that the hymn writer is saying. <clears throat> Submit and wait; the Lord will bring comfort. He'll give you new morning mercies, but ultimately He'll take away all sorrow. You have to trust that. And then the last verse: <clears throat> Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. I love the resolve of that statement. Um, I'm going to stand in this truth, and I'm not. I'm not going to move. Um, Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. Consider what's being said here. I submit to what God is doing, but who's the God who's doing it? That's my Father. There's a confidence that my Father cares for me, that my Father loves me, that I can trust my Father. Uh, I I totally submit myself to Him. So I I stand in this truth. Whatever He brings. Sorrow, need, or death. Because what can death do to me, ultimately? Just take me to Jesus faster. Death is gain to the Christian. Death can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's confidence here, even in the face of the darkest season of life. The reflection here is very similar to the Heidelberg Catechism, which many of you have, have come simply to love. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And goes on to assert the trust in the fatherly care of the Lord who has purchased us with His own blood. We're about to sing this hymn. Uh, In closing, I want to tell you, I'll try to do it in a short way, tell you a story. I think I've told this story before, so forgive me if you've already heard it. In 2006, uh, a friend of mine uh, named Matt Baugh, who pastored a church in Mississippi, 25 minutes north of me. Uh, He had moved to Haiti. He actually had grown up in Haiti and uniquely was gifted to speak Haitian, which is this weird combination of of French and other things, um, and could preach the Gospel. He went as an OPC missionary. He was PCA, but the PCA didn't have a work in Haiti. So the OPC ends up calling him to go do it. Um, Matt is there enduring all kinds of struggles. I think he'd been there two years. And then on a May morning, May 6, 2006, Matt is driving a a motorcycle, which is the easiest way to get around, and he's cresting a hill, and a truck runs the intersection and hits him. And he's mortally wounded. Uh, They couldn't get an ambulance there fast enough. Word gets back just through word of mouth to his wife Shannon, who's probably a mile away. She hails a, a taxi, gets to where Matt is. There's still no ambulance. Shannon takes Matt into uh, the taxi to go to the hospital. And she's holding him in his arms. And she's saying this hymn. Now, I want you to think about this last verse in particular, <clears throat> holding your dying husband in your arm who's just been suddenly taken from you. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. Can we sing it with that kind of resolve? Can we face the hardest struggles of life? And embrace the truth that my God is sovereign and whatever He does is right and I submit to it and I, I take it content in what He has sent. And I trust that His hand will wipe all my griefs away. Well, may the Lord give us that kind of trust in Him. Well, let's stand together. And let's sing hymn number... 108. pray for us. Gracious Father, You are good and wise and faithful and true. And Lord, we know that in Your sovereign reign, You are doing good for Your people. Not good as we would define it in our flawed understanding, but good according to Your great saving purpose. Help us, O Lord, to submit to You as our Heavenly Father whose care for us never ceases and whose giving of Your Son proves how much You care, how much You love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.